0: columbia pictures takes you beyond the future to a universe you've never seen before a universe of sexual fantasies was incredible i've never felt anything like it a universe of magic fiction. Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we explore the films of Ivan Reitman. I'm Ross May, here to take you beyond the future to a universe you've never seen before. Or heard. Welcome back. Yes, this week we're covering the animated film Heavy Metal from August of 1981. And you know what? We look at this film and see, oh, Ivan Reitman produced it and some of his pals voiced in it, but we figure it's not really important to his body of work the way meatballs or stripes are. But you know what? I've discovered that's not true. This really is the last building block on the way to Ghostbusters and helps to shape Reitman's career in the future. But before we get into it, let's answer listener emails that built up while I was way out in space. Handsome Pete asks, Did you get out to Alberta to see the filming of the new Ghostbusters movie? No, I did not. Thanks so much for asking. Uh, But I was pleased to see a lot of fans posting pictures, running into Dan Aykroyd and Jason Reitman. Actually, the trailer is out now, and I can't help but go, oh, I know that location. Hey, I've driven on that road. Oh, that's definitely Drumheller. So that's my main reaction to the trailer. Beyond that, I think it looks cute. And I think that's the word I would use. Not so much funny, not even nostalgic or bittersweet the way I think a lot of people have been talking about the film. With the kids, so far it looks like a cute movie to me. Which is maybe not what everyone wants, but eh, wait until it comes out. I'm not here for anyone's negativity, by the way. Everyone, the future is now. The future is August of 1981, when Heavy Metal debuted. Let's hear the news. On August 1st, MTV went on the air. You can search around the net if you care to see the start of the broadcast, Most people familiar with MTV know that the first music video they played was Video Killed the Radio Star. Just an aside, I think it's almost appropriate that Heavy Metal debuted the same month as MTV. Heavy Metal is sort of a music video compilation of a movie, playing songs by rock and metal bands to go along with stylized videos. The segments in Heavy Metal do have stories, but the stories don't matter nearly as much as the style, so I think the experiences are kind of similar. On the Stripes episode if you can remember that far back. But on the Stripes episode, I told you about a Major League Baseball strike in June, and it ends on August 9th with the All-Star Game. Let's play ball. Here's some space news. On August 25th, the NASA probe Voyager 2 made its closest pass to the planet Saturn. The Voyager 1 and 2 probes were both launched in 1977 and would get some of the closest, best looks at distant planets in our solar system. And it really was the best look at the time. If you see an actual clear photograph of Saturn today, I mean as opposed to a CGI model, it was probably taken by either Voyager 2 or the later probe Cassini. But focusing on the Voyager program, these are the probes that are also famous for containing gold records that have Earth audio and some images on the back to try to assist aliens to know where we are in the universe. I sure hope that works out for the better. This was something kind of cool, and in the public consciousness, because a few years previous, in 1979, Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. So, if you watch the first Star Trek movie, you know the Voyager program factors heavily into its plot. That movie is really trying to connect the viewer of 79 to the future that Star Trek is set in. Like, this generation that built the Voyager probes are reaching out and almost touching the future that Star Trek is set in. It's a neat idea that's lost on more and more viewers of the Star Trek movies as we move away from 79. I know I jumped around a bit there, but yes, August 25th of 1981 is when Voyager 2 passed Saturn. Oh, and if you want to know, at the end of 2018, Voyager 2 was just leaving the solar system. So now it really is an outer, outer space. It's off to go meet the Enterprise now. (laughs) ...that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from The Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, automatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Ghostbusters. Yes, we're back. The Ghostbusters are back in theaters. And to celebrate, you can get... Ghostbusters 2 items. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Why not? You can show support for this podcast, and even get a great-looking No Ghost Peace logo and 10 tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash Ross Items available while they last. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. You know me. I like to be thorough in covering research. But let's try to speed things along, and if you're unfamiliar, go read the Wikipedia entries on Metal Hurlant, that's the original French magazine that means Howling Metal, and the entry on the Heavy Metal magazine. Metal Hurlant began publishing in December of 74. Inside, you'd find a collection of adult science fiction and fantasy comics with lots of nudity, weird creatures, and ideas. So, how do we reach Ivan Reitman? Well, over in New York was 21st Century Communications. That does not sound familiar. Well, in 79, that company would be renamed National Lampoon Incorporated. Ah, you see where this is going now. National Lampoon was published by Matty Simmons, but his business partner at 21st Century was Leonard Mogul. They had actually been working together for years before National Lampoon even started, back in the Diners Club business days and the Weight Watchers magazine. In 75, Mogul went on a trip to France to see if National Lampoon could be published over there in French. I'm not sure, but I don't think Mogul was even successful in this objective. But he did make contact with some French artists who would draw funny adult comics for the American magazine collected in the book National Lampoon Presents French Comics. But, even more important than that, Mogul discovered Metal Herlan and saw its potential for the States. So he bought the publishing rights for it in America, and in April of 77, Heavy Metal debuted. Hey, that was just a month before Star Wars came to theaters. Huh. There's no real connection there, but I find it neat that heavy metal in North America and Star Wars were born almost at the same time, two famous sci-fi properties. But, the story. Now we've established the connection. Maddie Simmons and Leonard Mogul's publishing company did National Lampoon, and now Heavy Metal, which honestly makes a lot of sense since they're both adult magazines for kind of the underground or alternative market. And the movie Animal House had been a huge success, so now let's try to repeat that success with the other big magazine they had. So that's how Ivan Reitman comes back into the picture. He had produced Animal House with Matty Simmons, so go have him produce a heavy metal movie. Okay, he doesn't really know animation, but that's fine. Reitman relied on his go-to pals to come up with a story, Dan Goldberg and Len Bloom. They quickly figured out they couldn't create a feature-length story that captured the feel of the magazine, so they made it an anthology with a bunch of little stories that were mostly adaptations from the comics. This had an immediate benefit too, because each segment could then be contracted out to different animation studios around the world. They didn't have to wait several years for something like a work-intensive Disney movie to be completed by one studio. Some studios only had a few minutes they needed to animate, so everyone got their work done in roughly a year. The final and largest story, Tarna, is only half an hour. But still, how do you make all this come together? Well, for one thing, you get Canadian animator Gerald Potterton. Apart from being Canadian, I don't know how he ran into Ivan Reitman or the National Lampoon crowd. It could be a simple case of the production asking around for someone. Also, I've read a few short interviews with him, but nothing really on how Potterton directed this film like, what his job actually entailed, because so much was contracted out around the world. So his role as a director wouldn't really be the same thing as directing a Disney feature. Before this, Potterton was most notable for being one of the animators on the Beatles movie Yellow Submarine. You can see a bit of a connection there in both being psychedelic animated films. We'll cover some of each segment's individual directors as we go along, but the other person I really want to talk about is Michael C. Gross. Ah, now we're really getting back into the National Lampoon and Ghostbusters connections. I talked about Gross in an extra podcast, so please go and listen to that to learn more about him. But yes, he was the former art director of the National Lampoon magazine, and was in the office when Leonard Mogul was talking about doing a heavy metal movie. Gross actually lied to him and said he knew how to make the animation come together, even though he had never worked in animation before. You know... I know so little about Potterton's work in the movie, and more about Gross, that Gross actually comes across more like the director of the movie than Potterton. I'm not saying that's actually true, I just mean I understand Gross's role better. What happened was, a bunch of animation studios all over the world were all contracted to do different segments for the movie. They were in Los Angeles, Toronto, the UK, all over. What's funny is you'd have a company like Atkinson Film Arts in Canada, which exclusively made children's content for the entirety of its existence, the earliest Care Bear cartoons, the raccoons, Velveteen Rabbit, and then the single thing they did that's not for kids is very adult. Atkinson Film Arts animated the Harry Canyon story, which includes nudity, sex, and people being disintegrated. They also did the B-17 story that features zombies and people being shot. I love that. Velveteen Rabbit and then this. For some of the animation studios, they also had to do their regular work and then try to fit in heavy metal at night. During normal business hours, a studio might work on commercials or a cartoon series episode that needed to be finished in a month. That would pay the immediate bills, but there was always still heavy metal to be done, so a lot of studios would clock out of their kiddie work at 5 o'clock, get something to eat, then do a whole other night shift animating heavy metal. Michael Gross was flying between all the animation studios, more than just art director, he sounds like the point man for making everything work together. If a studio in London had questions, or something was going wrong, he'd fly over there, give them the direction they needed, and then fly over to Toronto to another animation studio and do more of the same. He says that he was basically flying non-stop for the year that Heavy Metal was in production. Oh, and in his interview to the Comics Journal in 2015, gross figures Heavy Metal was around a million dollars over budget. So, animation studios were lined up and Michael Gross was going to coordinate everything. Now comes a question. Which comics from the Heavy Metal magazine were they going to adapt to the screen? All the creators they got to sign on were either American, or in the case of Angus Mackay, English. But the original magazine, Metal Herlan, is French. So what about French creators? Well, about that. In the extras featurette on the disc, Dan Goldberg talks about the difficulty of getting French artists to agree to the movie and then he just moves on. What he's not saying is that they approached legendary artist Jean Girard, aka Mobius, to directly adapt some of his stories. If you don't know who Mobius is, Google Mobius Artist, and you'll discover why he was so talented and so well-respected by other comic artists. And hey, film buffs, you'll know Mobius as the man doing pre-production art on the failed Jodorowsky version of Dune, and designing the spacesuits in the film Alien. Also, also, even though Michael Gross and Mobius didn't work together on heavy metal, they had a common friend in Stan Lee. Sidetracks. I never get sidetracked. Mm. It sounds like Bloom and Goldberg were the ones talking to Mobius to adapt some of his metal hurlant stories, and Mobius turned them down. So what did they do? They changed Mobius' characters a little bit and wrote two segments for the movie anyway, the future noir Harry Canyon story and the finale, Tarna. Both of those are based on Mobius comics, the Long Tomorrow and his Arzak series. And I get it. You know, Bloom, Goldberg, and then the whole movie production goes out of their way to make their ideas legally distinct. But the animators even copy Mobius's fantastic art style as much as they can. Frankly, this is one of the shadier things that this team of filmmakers has ever done. Fail to acquire rights, so they walk up just to the line of stealing ideas. We'll cover this again when we get to the Harry Canyon and Tarna segments. Michael Gross said production on the movie took around a year, so it was actually happening at the same time as Stripes. Eh, Some days while filming Stripes, they would pull John Candy away from filming, get him into a recording studio for a bit, and then get him back to set. So that's a fun thing to consider when you hear Candy in this movie. Apparently he's even wearing his army fatigues when he's reading some of his lines. Originally, Heavy Metal was slated for the end of 1981, but Columbia told Ivan Reitman, and Ivan told all the animation studios, that if they had it done for August, they figured it would make a lot more money. So animators really put in a lot of extra hours to get this all done. With a name like Heavy Metal, and knowing the magazine's readership, it made sense to include a lot of rock and metal music. You've got Blue Oyster Cult, Stevie Nicks, Journey, Cheap Trick, Black Sabbath, Sammy Hagar, and more. I won't stop to say who did which song for each segment, because you can just read that in the credits to the film. But hey, this is spoiling something for later. All this music made the movie very difficult to release on home video. I mean, on the one hand, owning a VHS player or any kind of video device wasn't super common back in 81. But tapes did exist, and some movies had been commercially available as early as 77. But Columbia Pictures did the classic thing of licensing all this rock music for the movie but didn't think to lock down the home media rights. Consequently, they had to go back to each band and license owner and negotiate again for the home rights. Heavy Metal didn't make it to VHS until 1996, almost when DVD was ready to take its place. In fact, I think the DVD came out just a few years later, like 1999. More music, and actually of more interest to me, Elmer Bernstein composed the music for this film. Of course he did. In fact, some of heavy metal sounds very similar to Ghostbusters, like it's a B-side to the Ghostbusters score. We're just about to get into the movie itself, so listen to this music from the Harry Canyon segment. Can't you picture it being used somewhere in Ghostbusters? Since this is a weird movie, it's going to be a weird podcast in general. If you don't know, Heavy Metal has six little stories, plus a framing narrative. This means I'll be frequently talking about the basis for a story and the actors in it, then describe a bit of the plot, and then it'll be done and we're moving on. Segments just abruptly end and we're off to see something new. I save my reviews for the end of podcasts, but I have to say, I call Heavy Metal an experiential film. Which is maybe not the same term other people use. What I mean is, okay, if you watch The Godfather, the plot of The Godfather really matters. I get it, you actually experience all films, including intellectual ones. But my point is, a film like Heavy Metal is just an experience. And while it nominally has some plots, honestly, those plots don't matter in the end. It's like a lot of music videos in that way. Sure, there are plenty of stories and themes present, but that doesn't matter as much as just showcasing the music and conveying a feeling to you. Disney's Fantasia is another film I call experiential, where there are stories about Mickey as the Sorcerer's Apprentice, or the Dinosaurs, or the Night on Bald Mountain, but the stories don't matter as much as showcasing some music and images and getting you to have a feeling about it. Or hey, I'll say it more plainly, Heavy Metal is the kind of movie a lot of people would recommend to get high and watch, because the plot doesn't matter, it's the experience on the whole that matters. Let's get to it. The opening is pretty cool. A space shuttle opens up revealing a 59 Corvette convertible with an astronaut inside. The car goes through the atmosphere and lands with a parachute. Then the astronaut drives through the desert to his home. It's a fun, unusual opening. This opening segment with the car was by Jimmy Murakami. He actually took pictures of a real Corvette and used them in the movie. They didn't even rotoscope the car. It's just actual photos, which explains why it looks so different. A year later, Jimmy Murakami co-directed the Christmas special, The Snowman. You know, the one with the sad ending? Yep, that's him. I also know who he is because if you watch the end of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon series, you'll see Murakami Wolf Swenson. One of the names there is Jimmy Murakami. So a few years later, he was one of the producers of the original Ninja Turtles cartoon, and here he photographed and animated the soft landing introduction. Then we get the framing story. The astronaut is some schmuck who got a present for his daughter. You kind of wonder what he was thinking when he got this, or if he killed some people for it or what. The incredibly valuable object turns out to be the Lochnar, a glowing green orb that speaks and calls itself the sum of all evil. So, you know, a great gift for a kid. The astronaut with the two lines is Canadian actor Don Franks. I'm guessing you don't know who he is, but he's all over old Canadian and American radio and TV. But here's why you should know him. He's Cree Summer's father. You know, voice acting legend Cree Summer. But her dad, Don Franks, he seems like a really interesting guy. You see old black and white photos of him, and he seems like any other white man in the 40s and 50s. But his wife, Lily Clark, was black, so that right there made him different back in the day. But then they went ahead and fell in love with the Red Pheasant First Nation, a reserve in Saskatchewan only a few hours away from where I live. Anyway, they raised their kids there before moving to Toronto. Cree Summer and her siblings aren't native, they're mixed white and black, but I mean, her parents named her Cree Summer. Cree Summer, if you don't know, is one of the most prolific voice actors and started out as Penny on Inspector Gadget. And a few years later, she'd be playing Chili Cooper, the singing ice cream lady, plus other voices in the Slimer shorts of the real Ghostbusters. Plus, you know, millions of other roles. Oh, oh, wait! Don Franks is a big deal for one more reason. He's the original actor of Boba Fett in Star Wars. Really? He voiced Boba Fett in the animated segment of the Star Wars Christmas special. So he is the original Boba Fett. And he was on Littlest Hobo. Gotta mention that. And also, he's the X-Men villain Sabretooth on the 90s X-Men cartoon. But our story begins with the astronaut and his daughter. The girl speaks at the very start of the movie, which I think is a bad choice. Should I explain why? Okay, spoiler for the end in 3, 2, 1. In the final segment of the film, we meet the silent woman warrior... Tarna. When her story ends, and we see this girl for the first time, her hair changes to white like Tarna's, and she gets the same tattoo as her, so they're either the same character, or at least they're magically connected. They even spend the entire rest of the movie keeping the girl silent just to make this connection, so hearing her speak at all seems like the wrong choice to me. Tarna never speaks, so I think it would have made a better thematic connection if they had kept this girl silent too. So the evil glowing present the Lochnar disintegrates the astronaut dad and starts speaking to the terrified girl why not a scrapped idea in the film was that the dad would actually build a carousel powered by the Lochnar and each thing she rode on the carousel would represent one of the animated segments and the girl would flash to each story as she rode each thing instead the Lochnar is just going to tell her all the stories which frankly works just as well I mean, I don't know why the dad would power a carousel with a glowing green ball of evil, anyway. The Lochnar is voiced by Canadian actor Percy Rodriguez. He was a black actor, and he's notable for playing a lot of authority figures in the 60s, like Doctors and a Commodore on an episode of Star Trek, so he was a trailblazer for black actors in that regard. But here's really why he's in this film. He had a great voice, and he narrated a lot of movie trailers during his lifetime. And he would voice all sorts of trailers. Scrooged and The Great Outdoors and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but that wasn't his specialty. His specialty was for horror trailers. He was the voice for introducing you to horror. Horror like... The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition... There is another world. The world of darkness. The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. Man, he is the rational but chilling voice that's going to tell you what you need to be afraid of. The first trailer he ever did was The Exorcist, and the next one he did was Jaws. He did the teaser trailer to Alien, Videodrome, Children of the Corn, all kinds of stuff, so it's easy to tell that's why they got him voicing this sum-of-all-evil green orb. A quick aside to this, Percy Rodriguez also did David Cronenberg's Shivers, which Ivan Reitman produced. So that might have been where Ivan was introduced to him. Or not. I mean, I think everyone figured out, oh, Percy Rodriguez is the voice of scary movie trailers. So this all fit. Oh, and yes, that's Percy Rodriguez also narrating the heavy metal trailer at the top of the podcast. The first story is about New York cabbie Harry Canyon in the year of 2031. We're inching closer to that year, folks. Also... Hairy Canyon is a dirty joke. Get it? A body part that's hairy and... a canyon. Not a lot of sun shining there either. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what an asshole. This is one of the stories by Mobius I was talking about earlier, so it's a bit of a rip-off. It's inspired by the Long Tomorrow comic from 1975 by American writer Dan O'Bannon and the French artist Mobius. Actually, Dan O'Bannon worked in movies and was happy to agree to this film, but Mobius was not. If you're not familiar with him, Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay to Alien, wrote and directed Return of the Living Dead, and he actually created the digital effects in Star Wars. The Death Star plans and the little computer display in the X-Wing, that's done by Dan O'Bannon. But they're a comic together. O'Bannon and Mobius collaborated on this future noir story. The Long Tomorrow should clue you in that it gets its name from titles like The Long Night, The Long Wait, and The Long Goodbye. Even though O'Bannon was usually a writer, he was also a great artist himself. He drew these dense, futuristic cityscapes that inspired Mobius to do his own. So this was a case where O'Bannon inspired Mobius for the backdrop to their story. Here's the thing. The Long Tomorrow is very influential to all of science fiction. The story is fine. It's pretty standard stuff. And it actually ends on a gag. But what really matters is the art, particularly the cityscapes. Years later, author William Gibson was writing Neuromancer. It's not the first cyberpunk story, but it's one of the first, and it's really one where all the hallmarks of cyberpunk come together. Well, when Gibson was writing Neuromancer, he said he was basing the city and the general feel from The Long Tomorrow. The cities in Blade Runner and The Fifth Element are also inspired by Long Tomorrow. And through Blade Runner, you also get the look of the manga and anime film Ghost in the Shell. So today, artists and designers know this look, and some people would even call it the Blade Runner dystopian look, which is fine, but really the originator, the ground zero for this dense, overbearing future city, comes from the long tomorrow in Metal hurlong. So that's why the comic is important. But back to this story. It's July of 2031 in New York, and looks like they've rebuilt the World Trade Center towers and added a bridge between them. The art really focuses on urban decay, Rockefeller Plaza has a live sex show right next to the statue of Prometheus. American actor Richard Romanus plays Harry Canyon, the cabbie. Richard Romanus was playing Italian characters in cop shows like Jake and the Fat Man and NYPD Blue. He always had Italiano names like Carmine Del Marco, Grippo, and Tony Travelli. This keeps up into the TV role you'll probably know him from. He was Dr. Melfi's ex-husband in The Sopranos. He only showed up in a few episodes, but yeah, this schlub here also played Dr. Melfi's husband. That's how we know Richard Romanus, but he also voiced in one of the other most famous adult animated feature films of the time Ralph Bakshi's Wizards from 1977. He plays the elf lead, Weehawk. Other actors. The sexy dame in the story is played by Canadian voice actress Susan Roman. Ha! I wonder if they were amused by that pairing Richard Romanus playing opposite Susan Roman. Anyways, if you're my age, you'll know her work, though she was usually playing supporting roles. In Babar, The Raccoons, X-Men. She was Snowy or Milu on The Adventures of Tintin. A really underrated cartoon, by the way. It's one of the best of the 90s. And she's the original English voice of Sailor Jupiter. him just like I that. don't know. I, I guess so. Rudnick, the fat alien gangster who's all blobby, is voiced by Al Waxman. That's Larry King, the King of Kensington. He's also the lieutenant on Cagney and Lacey, but seriously, King of Kensington. He's a man among men, the people's champion. He's still busy. He's King of what a guy. All you American listeners have so many Canadian shows you can catch up on. Anyways, this is so minor and hard to catch, but Al Waxman was famous to Canadians for playing this anti-Godfather figure. A neighborhood guy who really was helping everyone, so having him play an actual mobster here is a joke if you notice who's playing him. Anyways, after Harry Canyon meets Rudnick, you see a sign for Jaws 7. Huh, it's almost the same joke as Jaws 19 in Back to the Future 2. You know, with the Jaws hologram eating Marty. Oh, and our old pal, Harvey Atkin, you know, the camp director from Meatballs, he plays the alien in the police station and one of Rudnick's henchmen. So here's the plot. This dame has the Lochnar, and the gangster Rudnick tries to kill her to get it. She asks Harry Canyon to help her out, having sex with him in order to get him on her side. After some close calls with Rednick's goons, Rednick offers to buy the Lochnar, and the dame and Harry make the trade without incident. But this is fun. Rednick touches the Lochnar; he doesn't fully comprehend what it can do, but still, why touch it? If I was a bad guy and bought like plutonium, I'm not going to go touch it. So anyway, he disintegrates immediately. You can see the ending coming a mile away. At the start of the story, Harry had to disintegrate a guy in the back seat of his cab when the rider tried to stick him up. Now Harry and the dame have the money, so they could conceivably be okay if they just split the money. But no, she pulls a fast one. Well, what she really does is pull a gun on Harry, saying she's taking all of the money. Harry pushes his button to disintegrate her, then laments that he did actually like her. It's straight out of noirs like Double Indemnity or the Maltese Falcon, where the villains can't help but double-cross each other and screw up their schemes. (laughs) The second story, Den, was directed by English animator Jack Stokes, who also directed the Beatles movie Yellow Submarine back in 68. So Heavy Metal's director, Gerald Potterton, used to work under Stokes. The Den stories were created by American artist Richard Corbin, who's a heavy metal all-star. Corbin is famous for drawing and painting similar to Frank Frazetta. Okay, you know how Conan the Barbarian looks like? Not Arnold Schwarzenegger's Conan, I'm talking in art. Frank Frazetta drew and painted Conan, muscles bulging, usually with naked or scantily clad women, and moody skies. Richard Corbin is very similar, to the point where I'd call him Frazetta's successor, but I don't know if some comic and art experts would scold me for simplifying things that way. Anyway, the point is Corbin is incredibly talented, and you can see his interest is in pulp heroes like Conan or John Carter of Mars, along with grotesque monsters and voluptuous women. Also to point out, Kevin Eastman LOVED Corbin's art, and got him to do one Ninja Turtles comic, plus several covers. Then Eastman bought the Heavy Metal magazine and got to work with Richard Corbin a lot. But I need to talk about Kevin Eastman and the rest of the history of Heavy Metal at the end of the movie. So, knowing Richard Corbin's body of work sets up the Den stories. Den is always some unassuming guy in real life who gets zapped to a fantasy world and gets a new body very much like Conan actually more than conan the den stories are especially like john carter of mars because the protagonist is the hero of another world and fights aliens and rescues naked ladies very much like john carter oh and if you're wondering why he's named den it's supposed to be an acronym of his name on earth but really it's a corruption of richard corben get it richard corben so richard as in dick dick corben so den I don't think I'm reaching, and Den being Corbin's manly alter ego is made even more clear in early projects. In 1968, Richard Corbin and his friends put together a weird, but pretty ambitious short film called Neverwhere. Search on YouTube for Neverwhere and Corbin and you can see it for yourself. I suppose it's kind of a prequel to this heavy metal segment. Heh, it actually does the same thing Reitman's film Orientation does, where a nerd is so upset with his life and frustrated he can't get a date, that it becomes this power trip, and kinda gross in that respect. But anyways, the interesting bit is the animation on the alien planet by Corbin himself. It's weird looking, but very ambitious considering I think he did all of the animating on his own. Okay, okay, back to the Den cartoon in the Heavy Metal movie. Here's something significant to the whole film. The magic object, the Lochnar, is actually Richard Corbin's invention. Outside heavy metal, whether it's in Corbin's comics or his film *Neverwhere*, the Lochnar is just a magic MacGuffin. It's not evil, and we're not even really sure what it does. But everyone wants it. But here, for the movie, it becomes the common thread in all of the stories. Of course, it's also evil and sentient. I mean, hey, why not? John Candy plays a kid, who discovers the Loch on Earth and then gets zapped to an alien planet, where the Loch also exists for some reason. John Candy does his deepest possible Superman voice for Den, which is fun. Actually, what's neat is Den's voice will boom, but the kid inside of him, still played by Candy, will still have a running commentary, talking like a 13-year-old about how lucky he is to see a naked woman. But yes, the kid is zapped to this world, discovers his new Superman body, only to see a cult ready to sacrifice a naked woman to a pool of red water. Apparently their cult leader, a woman in a red mask but topless, is a reference to the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland. Okay. The Red Queen here is voiced by Montreal's own Marilyn Lightstone. I talked about her last year on the Real Ghostbusters episode x Marks the Spot, where she was a woman on Fifth Avenue briefly. Lightstone would appear a few more times on the series. Joe Magic and Michael Gross must have remembered her from this movie's performance. So yes, Marilyn Lightstone is the evil queen here, and a few years later she'll perform on real Ghostbusters, including as Mrs. Faversham and Ray's Aunt Lois. The sacrificial woman here is voiced by Jackie Burroughs, a character actor in a lot of Canadian productions. She was in an Anne of Green Gables, with Marilyn Lightstone, by the way, If you remember the children's show Dudley the Dragon, she's that adventuring older lady in the hot air balloon? She's in Due South and Smallville, and she's the villain, the evil spirit, in the Care Bears movie by Nelvana. That's Jackie Burrows. Oh, and here's something. This character, the woman she's playing, is named Catherine Wells, and she explains that like John Candy's character, she was zapped to this alien planet and given a new body as well. Her name, Catherine Wells, almost doesn't matter, except that it's a reference. In the Den comics, it's made clear that Catherine Wells is really H.G. Wells' second wife, who is zapped to this world. I guess the point is that Corbin really wanted to say that he was inspired by H.G. Wells' science fiction stories, but it's a bizarre sort of tribute considering the point is she and Den are going to have sex together, and she's still technically married to her husband back on Earth, right? What's extra weird is this isn't the first time fiction has treated Catherine Wells like this. There's the novel and movie Time After Time where H.G. Wells is a character and he meets his wife Catherine through time travel shenanigans. Huh. People like the idea of Catherine Wells not existing in her own time and place for some reason. Ah, right, right, the plot. It's very slight. After Den and Catherine escape the cult, they make love, but are interrupted by monsters. It turns out another ruler wants the Lochnar. Hey, why is the Lochnar on this planet when we just saw it zap John Candy back on Earth? It didn't travel with him or anything. Oh well. Anyway, another ruler forces Den to steal the Lochnar from the Red Queen in order to rescue Catherine again. By the way, uh, this other ruler is a Caligula figure, a man who's very coded as gay and a fete. Nothing wrong with a villain being gay, but it's one of those cases where his sexuality is really tied to his villainy. I mean, he tells his monsters not to capture Den or kill him, but to castrate him. Yeah, let's move on. So Den has a job now. Steal the Loch from the Red Queen. Return it to that Caligula figure so he can rescue Catherine. Den nearly does it, but the Red Queen captures him and likes the cut of his... jib. Rather than kill him, she has sex with him. It's only in fantasy stories and James Bond adventures that people get confused about this sort of thing whether they should kill their enemies or have sex with them. Den and the evil queen have sex. Then Den needs to go run off and rescue Catherine who's still about to be sacrificed but now by the other ruler. There's a big fight with ugly monsters and the two rulers are wrestling over the Lochnar when Den tosses up a weapon at them and they get zapped by the Lochnar's powers. Rather than pick up the Lochnar which Den knows is bad news, he and Catherine decide to go off having sexy naked adventures together. And that's it. Honestly, I don't think this segment is as interesting or humorous as it should have been. Like, John Candy's kid voice commenting on the crazy, sexy adventures he's having is a neat idea, but he doesn't say anything really funny, which is what they were going for. The backgrounds are sometimes interesting, with swirling weird footage. I think the director Jack Stokes copied that from some things he did in Yellow Submarine. Oh, and this might not be my favorite, but Ivan Reitman says that this is his favorite part in Heavy Metal. The Loch Nahr flew off and we're on to a new segment, Captain Stern, created by comic book artist Bernie Wrightson. Okay, Bernie Wrightson is an individual Ghostbusters fans should definitely learn about. First off, he was a fantastic artist who could draw you Superhero Fair, Batman and Green Lantern and Hulk and the rest, But most famously, he co-created The Swamp Thing with Len Wein. So he could draw you anything, but moody scenes and monsters were really his specialty. Oh, and hey, I'd recommend any of his comic books, but especially his Frankenstein stories. They're fantastic. You look at them and go, oh yeah, this is how the Frankenstein monster is really supposed to look. Michael Gross must have been impressed by Wrightson's art. And, I mean, who wouldn't be? And they got to know each other professionally during the production of Heavy Metal. A few years later, when Ghostbusters needed ghouls and monsters fast, Gross asked Wrightson to draw concepts for the movie. Google Bernie Wrightson and Ghostbusters, and you can see some of his production art. Most notably, his sketches of the library ghost seemed to really be the basis for what was used in the movie. He also drew shaggy terror dogs that were not used, more alien-looking dimensional gates for Gozer, lots of cool stuff, even if a lot of it wasn't actually seen on screen. Actually, to me, it looks like some of his otherworldly passageway designs were used more fully for the Ghostbusters video game in 2009. But yes, Bernie Wrightson also created this character, Captain Stern, for heavy metal. Just imagine a Captain Kirk with all his personality flaws highlighted, especially his vanity. Huh, come to think of it, Captain Stern is basically the same joke as Zap Brannigan on Futurama this vain space captain who's actually a coward, along with other faults. The cast in this segment is fun. Captain Stern is Eugene Levy, back from Cannibal Girls. Stern's attorney is another SCTV actor, Joe Flaherty. My favorite Saskatchewaner and dean of Faber College, John Vernon, plays the prosecutor. Uh, John Vernon has just one of the best voices. I love it. Doug Kenney, yes, National Lampoon Doug Kenney, has a quick line in here summoning the witness and Roger Bumpus plays that witness with a gag named Hanover Fist. You should know Roger Bumpus. He's Squidward on SpongeBob SquarePants. But years before that, Michael Gross must have remembered him and have him come on as Lewis Tully in the later seasons of The Real Ghostbusters. It makes sense, because at first Hanover Fist is a real meek individual, like Lewis is. This story is one of the quickest to cover. Captain Stern is charged with all sorts of terrible crimes, but he's bought off a witness named Hanover Fist. That's Roger Bumpus's character, to say what a great guy he is. But Fist just recently picked up the Lochnar, which transforms him, like Hulk, or Jekyll and Hyde style, into a monster man. Fist chases down Stern and plans to kill him. I get that the Lochnar in this movie is evil, but they're not consistent on what it actually does. Does it evaporate people, or warp you to other planets, or change people into monsters? It does all of these things, but there's no real rhyme or reason why it does one thing in a story and not something else. Also, I don't get why the Loch Nahr mutates fists to go after Stern specifically. It's like the Loch Nahr has a sense of justice, when here I thought it was supposed to be just evil in general. The actual answer, of course, is that this is based on a gag story that originally didn't have the Loch Nahr at all. And here comes the gag. Stern is cornered, but he pays off Hanover fist, which makes the brute lose his muscles and becomes a weaselly little guy again. This makes more sense in the comic if he was just a Jekyll and Hyde person, but here in the movie it's weird again that the Loch Nars powers are subject to jokes like this, that getting paid off is going to diffuse the whole situation. But then Stern is a murderer and manages to blow fist out into the vacuum of space. Moving on, the Lochnar, with fists severed hand clutching it, was going to crash into a prehistoric earth and lead into a new story, but this was cut. This was called Neverwhere Land, not to be confused with Richard Corbin's short film Neverwhere. This cut segment, Neverwhere Land, was going to be a satire, sort of an evil version of the prehistory segment from Disney's Fantasia. Only instead of life emerging and dinosaurs, here the Lochnar strictly made violent events happen. Animals would evolve but constantly be eating each other, leading to human society, leading to wars. There's even a bit where Jack the Ripper appears and attacks a woman. And this would all end up in World War II. I don't know if the segment would have been great, but it would have served as a good connective tissue between Captain Stern and the next story, called B-17. They just ran out of time to do this story for the movie. So yeah. Neverwhere Land would have done a good job getting us to a B-17 bomber in the skies over the Pacific. To my knowledge, this is the only story, other than the movie's wraparound, that's not based on a comic from the magazine. This comes from the mind of writer Dan O'Bannon, who also co-created the Long Tomorrow story that morphed into that Harry Canyon segment. I also mentioned he wrote the movie Alien, and co-wrote and directed Return of the Living Dead which is appropriate because this segment here is kind of a mesh of those two movies, Alien and Return of the Living Dead. You see, years ago, Dan O'Bannon had wanted to do a horror movie about gremlins attacking the crew of a World War II bomber. His friend, Ron Chassette, suggested he change it to a vicious alien on a spaceship, hence the movie Alien. And hey, that starred Sigourney Weaver, but I digress. Mm -hmm. So that's how Alien came to be. Here for this segment, O'Bannon went in thinking he would use his original gremlin idea, and I don't know why this was changed, but the gremlins were altered to be skeletal zombies. Which, hey, that's not too far off from Return of the Living Dead a few years later. Huh, neat. It's World War II, and American pilots are flying a B-17 flying fortress over the Pacific. They get shot up, and the co-pilot, played by Don Franks, that's Cree Summers' dad again, discovers that all the gunners in the plane have been killed. He also sees the lochnar is following them in the sky though of course he doesn't know what that green light is. The lochnar burns away the flesh of all the corpses, turning them into zombified skeletons. One zombie kills the co-pilot, then the rest attack the pilot. The pilot manages to bail out just in time and parachutes to an island. There he discovers dozens of other planes have crashed. He thinks he might be okay when zombie skeletons start coming out of all the planes and the pilot is doomed. This segment is really well animated. It's a little bit more realistic than a lot of the others, not that that's necessarily the best mark of quality in animation. It's also just moody. Once again, it's kind of funny that the Lochnar has different goals and different powers in each segment. The B-17 looks so good because they got this huge model, filmed it from different angles, and rotoscoped it. That means tracing over the footage at a high contrast. <laughs> Next up is So Beautiful and So Dangerous, based on a comic by English artist Angus Mackay. A lot of the comic adaptations so far have been pretty faithful, but this one might be the most different. The original comic is about a bunch of humans being abducted into space, then those humans, the aliens, and a robot have discussions on culture and philosophy. At one point the protagonists are imprisoned for idealism, as that is a cardinal sin. Here in the movie, only the smiling spaceship and the robot played by John Candy even look the same, and they keep the idea of the spaceship crashing while docking, but that's about it. Most of the comic story is discarded. You see a CGI model of the Pentagon called a wireframe because it's just green lines. I was wondering if it's an actual CGI model because some movies like Escape from New York, also from 1981, had a similar looking computer screen, but it's really a trick. Those were just physical models and green tape. This pentagon here actually is computer generated, and this is confirmed by director Gerald Potterton in a 2015 interview for Animation World Network. It's super simple today, but back in 81 that CGI pentagon would have been very advanced, and probably costly. We have Roger Bumpus again, playing a scientist. He tells some high-ranking pentagon staff that there's no such thing as aliens, only for a smiling alien spaceship to arrive and vacuum him up aboard their ship, along with a sexy lady. The scientist then gets smashed to bits. It turns out he was really a robot. Dun dun da. The robot was, I don't know, spying on Earth or something? The story isn't interested in explaining what was up. But a different robot, played by John Candy, takes a liking to the woman, so he invites her for a drink. I like it how she doesn't voice any surprise to find out that there are aliens and robots, or that she's just been abducted. She's more concerned about her dress. The lady here is voiced by American actress Alice Playton. She was a character actor who would show up in things like Law & Order and Frasier, and she also did some voice acting. It's sort of hard to tell what her most famous role is, but my generation might kind of remember her from the cartoon Doug, where she played B.B. Bluff, the rich girl who's colored purple. Okay, wait, wait, I need to explain something about Roger Bumpus and Alice Playton in this story. Both of them were in good with the National Lampoon people. A few years earlier, in 78, they both performed in a terrible TV special called Disco Beaver from Outer Space. You know me, I try to research from every angle, so I watched some of this thing and it was god-awful. But the point is, Roger Bumpus and Alice Playton knew Michael Gross through National Lampoon. So yes, Bumpus and Playton knew Michael Gross and probably got their roles through this National Lampoon show called Disco Beaver from Outer Space. Oh, and hey, if you ever want to embarrass him, SNL and Simpsons cast member Harry Shearer is one of the people who wrote Disco Beaver. Bleh. Let's get away from that. The robot and lady have sex off-screen, and I love it how she says he's a great lover, even though he's naked and doesn't have any sexual organs to speak of. What I really like is he immediately starts asking her to get married, and she finally agrees, so long as it's a Jewish wedding. There's your big joke, everyone, that despite the absurdity of having sex and marrying a robot, the last obstacle in their relationship is whether or not the robot is willing to have a Jewish wedding. He agrees, by the way. Good for John Candy, robot. Not that logic ever really matters in this movie, but there's a confusing bit of continuity here. The robot and the lady exit the spaceship and arrive in an alien city, but then the next scene makes it clear that the ship is still in outer space. They haven't even arrived at the city yet. I know what happened. Originally, this segment was going to end with them stepping off the spaceship into the city, but instead, things got reorganized so it could end on a joke, even though it doesn't make sense now. And here comes that joke. There are these two aliens piloting the smiling ship. The green alien is Harold Ramis, and the pink one is Eugene Levy doing a voice. They lay out white powder called Plutonium Nyborg all over the floor. Then they snort it and trip out. Plutonium Nyborg is obviously cocaine. Or hey, maybe all cocaine on Earth is really Plutonium Nyborg. They use footage of a real explosion effect. When the guys are tripping out, Star Trek's Enterprise clearly flies across the screen, but only half of it, just so that they won't get into any legal trouble for showing it. They arrive at a giant super city out in space. You can see giant McDonald's arches on the left, and graffiti that says, Martians are people too. Hailed, Ramus's green alien is too stoned to fly straight, so he crashes the ship, though it sounds like everyone survived. It's kind of a lame joke to end on, frankly. Then the lady and robot were supposed to exit the ship right after this, but we've already seen them do that. I know I keep going back to this, but the Lochnar barely does anything in this segment. It combined with the woman's sex appeal, I guess, caused the disguised robot scientist to sexually assault her at the Pentagon? But then the Loch Nard doesn't matter after that. We don't even see it leave the woman, and it doesn't seem to have any negative effect on her at all. <laughs> the final story. We're back to the French artist Mobius again, and his Arzak comic starting in 1975. Like Tarna in the movie, Arzak is a silent protagonist flying on a pterodactyl-like creature across desert wastelands. The difference for this cartoon is that the male Arzak has been replaced with the female heroine Tarna. Hey, speaking of being inspired by Arzak, have you ever seen or read Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind? It also features a hero who flies. In her case, it's a craft, but it's almost a pterodactyl but Nausicaä flies alone over deserts, soaring past giant skeletons of monsters, and both deal with deadly, mutant plant life. Visually, Nausicaä is very similar to Arzak. And yeah, most people don't realize this, but visually, Arzak was the first spark that inspired Miyazaki to do that story. Arzak and characters in Nausicaä even wear the same hats? I know that doesn't sound very significant, but trust me, these are distinctive hats that I've only seen in Arzak comics and Nausicaä. Mobius and Miyazaki actually became friends and met several times. I mean, Mobius is one of France's most respected comic artists, and Miyazaki is one of Japan's most respected animators, so it makes sense that they would bond over their crafts. And I'm not the only one to have made this connection between the two. In 2004 and 2005, Paris held a joint exhibition of Mobius and Miyazaki's work. So there you go, anime and manga fans. Hayao Miyazaki, one of Japan's most celebrated animators, took inspiration from Mobius. So you can see two visions on screen of sort of the same idea, here in Heavy Metal, then also in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I should talk about other artists who helped animate Tarna. Two notable ones working on this movie are Mike Plug and Howard Chaikin. Mike Plug is famous over at Marvel Comics. He co-created Ghost Rider and Werewolf by Night. He also did storyboards and did design work for movies including The Thing, The Dark Crystal, and the animated film Wizards. He would go on to do production work on Ghostbusters under Michael Gross. Meanwhile, Howard Chaikin is a great artist who has worked on just about everything, Marvel and DC and more. Chaikin was the original artist on Marvel's Star Wars comics. I don't believe Chaikin went on to work on Ghostbusters, though. Here are some actors in The Tyrant Story. Vlasta Vrana is the Barbarian leader. I don't know him that well, but he's all over Canadian television, particularly cartoons, and dubbing international cartoons. He was also on The Littlest Hobo. So important to mention. But the reason I point out Vlastavrana is because he got his start in the 1975 film Shivers, which was produced by Ivan Reitman and directed by David Cronenberg. So that's the connection there. Reitman knew him from acting in that horror movie. But people will probably know him best from voicing video games, like the Assassin's Creed series, Splinter Cell, stuff like that. That's Vlastavrana. Cedric Smith plays the bartender, and likewise he's all over Canadian TV. Littlest Hobo? Street Legal, Road to Avonlea, and Murdoch Mysteries? But to millennials, and especially Americans who aren't as up on Canadian shows, will recognize his voice as Professor Charles Xavier on the 90s X-Men cartoon. Man, I know a lot of people familiar with that cartoon sort of chuckle at its Canadian cast, but if you're Canadian and ever actually look at the cast, you'll be familiar with most of the people in other shows. I love it. The Loch Nahr crashes into a mountain, turning it into an evil volcano. Green sludge from it mutates people. Huh, come to think of it, the last segment mentioned that people were being mutated by green radiation, so maybe there's a little connection. Anyway, the mutants go on a rampage and slaughter a city of humans. There's a council for the city, and all the councillors inside basically say they can't fight and they suck. Their leader, the Elder, is played by someone who really matters. I know I've been pointing out actors we're kind of familiar with, but Mavor Moore, yes, that's the actor's name, Mavor Moore, he is probably the most significant person in this whole movie. Mavor Moore wasn't really focused on acting. He was a founder of theater groups and a producer and a writer for plays. He was working at CBC right from its start in radio in the 1930s. And he was one of the first people working at CBC television in the 50s. Mavermore created The National in 1952. That's right, one of Canada's main news broadcasts, Mavermore created it and built that format. He won three freaking Peabody's in the States and the Governor General's Award in Canada. And here he is playing a voice in heavy metal. I find that wild. Ivan Reitman has worked with famous people before, but I'm calling it right here, everyone. Mavermore right here is the most prestigious, the most historically important person to ever appear in a Reitman production, and it's for doing a voice in heavy metal. But we must press on. They show a kid getting shot full of arrows and then dying. That's pretty intense for any movie. Tarna shows up flying on her pterodactyl thing, and this really demonstrates to me how it's similar to the movie Nausicaä. I don't think Miyazaki would like this movie for all its violence, but he's always into watching artsy animated films from around the world, so I have to think he saw this sequence before he started Nausicaä as a manga a year later. Also, listen to the music. Elmer Bernstein uses an owned martineau It's that spooky instrument, like a theremin, that he'd use a few years later in Ghostbusters. Doesn't this sound like a different attempt at Dana's theme? Fantastic. And it makes you realize that art isn't always a flash of lightning. It's not always a eureka moment. Elmer Bernstein was already getting interested in the On Martinot and even created a song similar to Dana's theme. You see Tarna flying through a skeleton of a giant creature, which again would be a thing in Nausicaa. When Tarna is flying forward over the desert, over all the crags and the earth and the things moving closer to the camera, that's a very difficult thing to do in traditional animation. That shot started out as a big physical model. They filmed zooming over top of the desert model, then rotoscoped it all, or traced over the footage. Today, you can just do a shot like that with a computer model. More traditional animation trickery. When Tarna flies into the city with all its pipes and tunnels, there are shots using a multiplane camera. Proto versions of a multiplane were built by several animators at different places, including the Flesher Studios, but Oob iWorks, you know, the co-creator of Mickey Mouse that Disney always likes to overlook, Ub Iwerks, invented a multiplane camera as it's really known today. In traditional animation, a camera captures images of cells on a flat surface. For a multiplane camera, it's the same principle, except you have multiple floors or multiple layers of glass, each with their own cell of art. It's not 3D, but you get a more realistic illusion of depth. If you pan across the art, the layer at the top will move fast, like you're walking by a tree, but the cells at the bottom will move just a tiny bit, like a mountain in the distance that you're traveling by. The opening shot of Bambi is a really good example of a multiplane camera in action, giving the illusion of depth to a forest, and here it's being used in Tarna, which is a pretty fancy work, actually. Tarna reaches a shrine to a prophesized warrior. I mean, hey, cool that the warrior of prophecy is a woman. Of course, that also means she gets naked and swims to the shrine. Of course she's going to be naked. By the way, speaking of influences, if you were to remove the sexuality from this scene, it's kind of reminiscent of some holy shrines in the past couple of Legend of Zelda games. In Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild, the places with water and the statues of goddesses and bird motifs? Maybe I'm reaching, but I really don't think I am. And psst. Those games borrow heavily from Miyazaki films, especially Nausicaä and Castle in the Sky, so I think I'm seeing some common inspirations here. As much as Tarna is a strong female protagonist, she also suffers from all the jokes about being strong female protagonists. The Warrior of Prophecy gets clothing of prophecy at the shrine, which ends up being skimpy red and black leather. Huh. It almost makes you wonder why she didn't just stick to being naked. Also, they had a woman, a model, do this scene, with a camera panning around her, and the animators closely followed the footage. They didn't rotoscope her, they didn't follow her that closely, but following the footage did help them out because again, animating something that rotates is actually difficult. Something genuinely badass now, Tarna pulls a sword from a body of water. Hey, that's how King Arthur got Excalibur as well. Huh. Anyway, she pulls the sword, and she raises it up high, and there's lightning and effects. The Lightning is very He-Man or She-Ra, and speaking of which, He-Man didn't exist yet, and once again, I'd have to assume the future animators over at Filmation at least saw this sequence and got a bit inspired, though holding up a sword high has been a fantasy trope for a long time before this. Then Tarna flies off in search of the mutants, stopping at a rough, futuristic bar for information. You can't do a sci-fi story so soon after Star Wars without copying the cantina scene. I mean, hey, Star Trek Three would do it a few years later. I like it how it sounds like this wild party, but there's like eight patrons inside, and a band that's supposed to be Devo. Of course, some guys hassle Tarna, and she uses her sword to behead them. This is some of the more lavish animation in the film, but that also means it's some of the slowest, so when she swings her sword, it's like a swing. The bartender, that's Cedric Smith, or Professor X, points Tarna in the direction of the mutants, but when she's out flying close to the evil Lochnar volcano, she and her pterodactyl are captured in a net. She's tortured by the mutant leader and thrown into a pit, only to be rescued by her pterodactyl immediately after. I swear, she was only captured by the villains for like a minute tops. Tarna and her steed crash, and she begins a duel with the barbarian leader. At one point the pterodactyl saves her and the leader stabs it off screen which, I like it how showing the murder of a child in this movie was fine, but showing a fictional animal getting maimed is too brutal and we can't see it. Of course, she wins the fight. He's got a buzzsaw arm, and she shoves it into his neck and kills him. Tarna and her dying steed fly up above the evil green volcano, and she uses magic lightning coming out of her sword to shatter the Lochnar. This is where Heavy Metal's poster comes from, Tarna and her steed. I like that Percy Rodriguez shouts out a very lazy, no at her. No. And that is the end of Tarna's story. We don't see her afterwards, because it seems the shock of this story is also killing the Lochnar back in the framing narrative. The Lochnar explodes, and the girl runs out of the house. The house blowing up here is actually a model. It's only a model. The plan was to rotoscope it as well, but they ran out of time so they just used the real footage. I think this last bit is animated by a different studio than the rest of the wraparound, because even in the darker setting, the girl looks like she's a different style, and she's missing the choker she was wearing for the whole movie. The girl hears a familiar cry. A pterodactyl, possibly the same one from the story, lands and the girl happily takes off with it her hair turns white like Tarna's, and she gains the same tattoo as Tarna on her neck. Percy Rodriguez, now suddenly being a pleasant narrator rather than the evil Loch says that a new hero is born. Does that mean that the girl is separate from Tarna? Or was she witnessing the future and she's literally going to be the woman in the story we just witnessed? People have asked director Gerald Potterden, and he said that he doesn't know. It's one of those two options. Tarna and the girl are either the same, or they're just connected by destiny or some such, hey, this also doesn't make sense on the Lochnar side of things. The Lochnar said that the girl had the power to destroy it. We're guessing forever, but then the Lochnar is destroyed in both the Tarna story and the framing story. So does it exist in two states, or what's going on? Well, let's get real. It doesn't matter in the den story. The Lochnar existed in both the kid's home and the fantasy world at the same time so this whole movie isn't even concerned about actual logic, and I think that's fine. After all this weirdness and sometimes grossness in the movie, it ends on a kind of whimsical note, which is unexpected. But yeah, the girl could either be the next Hero of Prophecy, or maybe she will go off and fulfill the story we just witnessed. Okay, I think I said this would be a weird movie to cover. Should I say it's good? Bad? Does that matter? I will say, this movie isn't really my thing. Weird can be fine, and adult content can be fine, but most of it here matters so little, there's no punch to it. Like, I can talk about the smiling spacecraft segment. That ship does look cool on the outside, but there's basically no story to it. And the two jokes are a robot and human woman having sex, and wouldn't it be funny if aliens got stoned just like humans? And most of the segments are like that. The Den story is supposed to be amusing, and a barbarian kind of adventure, but it's paper-thin. The Captain Stern bit looks neat because it's the cartooniest segment, but it's this gag about a witness not being able to help himself telling the truth, then turning into a monster. That's like a bit of the movie Liar Liar. Someone just can't help but say awful truths really, really loud. Which brings me to the final thing, the Loch Nahr. For being an ultimate evil entity, it sure doesn't seem all that evil in most of the stories. At least it vaporized Rudnick in the Harry Canyon story and it made zombies in B-17. But in the Stern cartoon, it seems to have a sense of morality and justice and wants to get Stern killed. It's super obvious it wasn't in a lot of these original comics. I talked about this movie being a whole experience, and that's really the best way to explain it. I don't think it's very good, but it is a trip, even if you're not into getting stoned. Let's talk about the future, as in... The 90s and 2000s. I already mentioned Heavy Metal couldn't make it to home video until 96 because Columbia forgot about the home video rights to the music. This movie cost around 9 million dollars to make and earned 19 and a half million. So it was no flop, but nowhere near the smash hit of Animal House. And hey, the story of Heavy Metal Magazine and its brand. Well, it doesn't really become personal to me, but it moves sort of closer to my orbit. One of its big fans right from the start was a teenaged Kevin Eastman, who's always said he was more drawn to its comics than he was to superhero fare. And when the movie came out, I think he would have been 19 at the time, he was so jazzed and he took a date to the movie, he says that his girlfriend dumped him immediately afterwards. Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 83 and began publishing the next year. They became millionaires once the toys became the biggest hit. In 1992, Eastman purchased the heavy metal magazine, the North American version, that is, and became its publisher. Then he got to work with some of his artistic heroes, including Richard Corbin. Eastman sold a majority share of the magazine in 2014. He's still its publisher and a minority shareholder in it today. But there's more. Kevin Eastman was really excited about doing a sequel heavy metal movie, and he helped make that happen with Heavy Metal 2000, or Heavy Metal F-A-K-K, squared in some markets. It's loosely based on his comics called Melting Pot he did with Eric Talbot and Simon Bisley. And I actually have original art by Eastman and Bisley, and they're very cool. And Eric Talbot worked on some of my Ninja Turtles comics many years later. Ahem, anyway, these guys did this crazy comic called Melting Pot where monster people are all at war with one another. There's, to me, there's only a few connections between it and Heavy Metal 2000, including the character Zeke and the villain has the same name in both the comic and the movie. Frankly, what's of more importance is Kevin wanted to create a vehicle for his then-wife, Julie Strain. The fact that the main heroine is voiced by Julie, is named Julie, and looks exactly like her is a dead giveaway. I will say this, though. Kevin Eastman at least has a sense of humor, because there's a character stand-in for him in the movie, but he's not heroic, or gets to be with Julie or anything, but instead is this weaselly loser along for the ride. It doesn't make the movie good, but I appreciate Kevin Eastman wanting to poke fun at himself. Oops, and yeah, I just gave it away there. Heavy Metal 2000 isn't very good. It's not even as interesting as the original, just because it's one story and one art style. It's not really connected to anything in the original, but the villain is infected by a green energy and goes on a killing spree, so it's a bit like the Lochnar and the Violent Mutants. In fact, if you really cared about this, you could go so far as to say the green energy in this movie is left over from the Loch Nair, but the plot never makes that idea clear. Huh? And I love the name of the incredibly evil villain in this movie. Tyler. And he's played by Michael Ironside at everything. But what if a Darth Vader figure, or Darkseid, or Thanos showed up, and his name was... Wait for it... Tyler. That's funny. And Julie kicking ass for the whole movie is drawing a connection between her and Tarna, and that's fine. The whole movie tries to be cool and sexy and violent, and it just comes out as something mediocre. Ivan Reitman and all his team, as well as the original animators, weren't involved with it. It was produced by Animation Studio Cine Group in Montreal, but all the animation was really done in South Korea. Oh, and I didn't realize this until I looked it up. Rana the barbarian leader in the original film, makes a cameo in 2000. I think he's the only individual who has anything to do with both films. Hey, one more little thing. Did you know in 2012 there was a heavy metal live-action TV show? Well, almost. Metal Hurlant Chronicles was a French-Belgium show based entirely on the European magazine, so it had no association with the American magazine or its productions. But I love this... Even though it was Franco-Belgian, it was an English-language TV show. I love how things work like that sometimes. The show had 12 episodes. I haven't seen it, but people don't have a lot of complimentary things to say about it. It was an anthology show, but similar to the Loch being a part of every story, an asteroid passing by every planet seems to mess people up and cause horrible things to happen on the series. Whew. I think I really covered heavy metal here. The magazine and comics, the segments of the original movie, plus a bit about 2000 and a TV show. The original movie is definitely an experience if you've never seen it. But I wouldn't quite call it great. But what we've really done is added Michael C. Gross to Ivan Reitman's team, Elmer Bernstein is creating music using an own Martineau, and we're well on our way to Ghostbusters. I'm Ross May, and you can talk to me on Twitter at RossMayWriter, or go to RossMayRider.com and find my email there. I'll talk to you later, but for now, we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way.